Hi, everyone, and thanks for listening to The Strike in Ellicott Files, an unofficial podcast dedicated to all things Cormoran Strike as written by Robert Galbraith. My name is Kenz, and today, Lindsay and I will be joined once again by Clara Strike of the Denmark Street Deep Dive podcast. And this time, we are going to be going through chapters, what is it, 25 through 30, right? Mm-hmm. That is right. Just a couple things before we start. One, as always, we will be discussing the events of the rest of the book. So if you haven't read or finished Troubled Blood, I would not advise continuing to listen. Um, and also another thing, we do include discussion of the snuff film in this particular episode. And it does, you know, obviously include graphic depictions of violence against women. So we will include timestamps in, uh, in the episode description if you want to skip over that part of the discussion um but yeah all right starting with 25 you want me to take the epigraph here okay chapter 25 all those were idle thoughts and fantasies deuces dreams opinions on sound shoes shows shows oh that makes so much more sense shows visions soothe says and prophecies and all that feigned is as leasing tales and lies and basically what it's saying is Oakton's book. book. <laughs> it's a bunch of BS. So basically, Strike is here doing surveillance and reading Oakton's book, Whatever Happened to Margot Bamborough. And Robin has made some notes in it for him of what she thinks is important. And mm-hmm. the first note is, and obviously this is all nonsense, so not that I actually think this. Um, the first note is that Margot gave patients like Steve Douthwaite the wrong idea by openly talking about sex, recommending the joy of sex to women, etc. And he even quoted someone as saying that it reflected badly on the practice. Mm-hmm. Now I can see him completely making that up, but I can also maybe see Irene saying it. Oh yeah. Yeah. No, knowing what we know about Oakton and his perspective on the world, shall we say, yeah. that yeah, I, I can uh, I can imagine him finding lots of people to uh, to corroborate his own perspective on the whole thing that he probably got from his mum as well, and mm-hmm. yeah, confirmation bias, shall yeah. we say, that's the phrase. Robin's uh, Robin's second note is about Jules Bayless, who was the husband of Wilma the cleaner slash social worker. And I think there was some questions as to if he could be a suspect. He was in prison at the time. Mm-hmm. There's some questions on whether or not he hired her and and because he would have been angry that Margot encouraged Wilma to leave him. Again, which uh, the whole thing tells you more about Oakton than it does about the case, to be honest. Yeah. And I like that Strike, you know, thinks it was surprising that he wasn't sued over this. Yeah. I particularly enjoyed Strike's editorial comments yeah. as well <laughs> about this, but yeah, I can see why you deserve to have your book pulped, you horrible yeah. what's it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. And isn't that lovely as well? I mean, that's that's Strike. He's just such a real admirable man. He's not a perfect man by no. any means, but he can he can pick up on on crappy men from, from a mile off. You know, it's like it's like the bit in the adaptation. Where, where the guy comes up to a drunk Robin and says, can I wait with you? No, you can't. Yeah. <laughs> like, no, I know you. I've got your number, mate. Yeah. Okay, so we talked that, that Strike was on surveillance, but we didn't talk about what he was doing. What did you guys think of SB? Did either of you suspect what was going on? My husband figured it out. Yeah. Yeah, no, <laughs> I'm going to say no. I was I was really frustrated with Robin because it seemed so blinking obvious to me. I wasn't that you know I didn't get the main case at all, but this one I was like when she was when she went to the supermarket yeah. and, and and like she was buying dummies or whatever. I was like, oh come on! This is and, it, and the only reason I can think is that Robin didn't get it was because she was on the phone to strike and she was distracted. Um, yeah. That's which per- makes perfect sense in character terms, but. Yeah, mm. I was like, oh, come on, this is ridiculously obvious. What? Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's why I was quite an, as annoyed with Barclay as I was, actually, because I was like, don't come in and tell them this. They should have worked this out already. They need to talk <laughs> about this other stuff. Go away. Stop Go it. Away. <laughs> I really don't think there's much more to this chapter. 26. You you go ahead. Sure. All were fair knights and goodly well beseen, but to fair Britomart they all but shadows been. The connections to the Fairy Queen are just so good. I just love them so much. 
they're really satisfying aren't they mm-hmm. i think they really that's you know, of all the the epigraphs that that i've looked at as i've gone through the books fairly systematically i've, I've really enjoyed these ones because mm-hmm. she just she's very clever with them and i loved your interpretation here robin only cares about this guy right here mm-hmm. basically <laughs> This is really a nice uh, recap for them, just hanging out in the office, going over their cases, even though poor Strike is in denial about his him having the flu. He's poorly bad. He's poorly bad. That he is. He is. <laughs> Sorry, it's very Midlands. <laughs> I felt so bad for him, especially in the audiobook. Um, Clara, I know you've you've you know listened to the audiobook probably as as much as Lindsay and I have, but the the croaking and the wheezing whenever he's talking to Pat, poor thing. I was like, yeah, it's painful, like, isn't it? You like, can like, yeah. And yeah, if Morris would have just stayed home, yeah, what an asshole. Yeah, absolutely. Barclay has him right down, doesn't he? There, Morris is an asshole. We all say, amen, amen. <laughs> uh, it's really hard to read about people being sick and out and about in our current time. I know. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because I was just like, mm, go home. Yeah. Please. Yeah. It's stressful. Yeah. Robin is so, she she nails so much in this book. I, I love this little update that we get on postcard that she was seen with all of his, his postcards. And how she trying not to show how much pleasure Strike's praise had given her. She's such a words of affirmation kind of gal. She is. She she needs that from him. Yeah. And he gives it to her and, and she doesn't she doesn't always notice, which mm-hmm. is a little bit frustrating on, on her part. That, mm-hmm. you know, especially at a certain Valentine's meal, she kind of blows up at him um, because she says you haven't told me. And actually he has. But I think because she's so used to not hearing the positive things that she's got this massive deficit that is going to take him quite some time to fill up, I think. I blame Matthew. Yeah. Oh, we always blame Matthew because we should. <laughs> yeah. Yes. It's a good thing that Strike, I think, picks up on that and tries to make up for it, you know, mm. in kind. Um, we get more Pat here, which I just love Strike and Pat together. Robin trying not to smile that he's he wants to be irritated but can't. <laughs> and Pat gives it right back to him, too. She's, like, charming. Mm-hmm. Right up there with, it wouldn't have been a big card. <laughs> <laughs> so good. I love their relationship so much. That's another relationship I want to see further developed, Strike and Pat. So he gets a couple phone calls. Gregory Talbot has a film for him. And Shanker, they're going to meet up later. I love that only one part of that sentence that Shanker said to him made any made sense. sense. Yeah. yeah. Makes sense. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like he, He's like, what? what was that? He has no idea. I know. Monster High Dolls and Zahara, he doesn't even click. <laughs> um, when they do discuss the Bambro case, there's... One thing that stood out to me here was he's reading into Talbot's notes and thinks he might be onto something here. He, he he had the same idea that I did, and that's Margo might have been lured, lured somewhere on the pretext of someone needing medical assistance, which he decided meant danger associated with illness. And it's one of those other things where they're so close because they're just slightly off. There is danger associated with illness. They're just not seeing that it's the person who's causing the illness and not the person coming in. Yeah. There's this section here that, and this ties into the whole strikes reticence about looking at the the, the supernatural aspects that actually hampers him here. So he's he's recognizing that actually Talbot's copper's instincts are fairly sound, even through all the nonsense overlaying it. This bit here, I'm, I'm going to read it because it because it's yeah. So, but the notes explain why he kept interviewing Janice. Her star sign's Cancer. Cancer is Capricorn's opposing sign, and Cancerians are psychic and intuitive, according to Talbot's notes. Talbot concluded that, as a Cancerian, Janice was his natural ally against Baphomet, and that she might have supernatural insights into Baphomet's identity, hence the dream diary. Even more significant in his mind was that Saturn, Capricorn's ruler, Robin hid a smile behind her mug of tea, strikes expression as he outlined these astrological phenomena would have been appropriate to a man asked to eat a week's old seafood, was in cancer on the day of Margot's disappearance. From this, Talbot deduced that Janice knew or had had contact with Baphomet, hence the request for a list of her sexual partners. Now, He's read that. Now, he already knows that according to the, what Talbot had written, that he thought the murder was a Capricorn. 
And he's got here the woman that he kept coming back to interview saying that Capricorn was in cancer on the day of Margot's disappearance. And the woman he keeps coming back to interview is cancer. So Capricorn's in cancer and he keeps coming back to interview this woman who is cancer, who is Capricorn on that day that Margot disappears. Ah. It's right there. He's actually got the clue that could solve the entire case but because of strike's prejudice against looking at any of this with with a with an analytical eye he's missed it completely but it's right there and it's it's so, oh my god that you could you could solve the entire case right there there we are that's great i've never noticed that that's that's awesome <laughs> mind blown yeah, okay. yeah. <laughs> well it makes this next bit i was going to point out much less interesting <laughs> oh sorry <laughs> no no i'm just kidding that's great. I'm just kidding. Um, no, I just thought it was, again, to pointing to what a great liar Janice is when they talk about Charlie Ramage and that Robin had confirmed that, no, it wasn't Margot. It was a different woman. Janice definitely wouldn't have confused the two women, would she? Unless she was lying. Yeah. And then uh, strikes frowning so deeply, thinking about having to talk to Irene again, that Robin asks <laughs> if he's in pain. <laughs> Doesn't he say somewhere like, I had really hoped to never speak to her again? Mm-hmm. You want to talk about what you um, put? Oh for yeah! Ah, see, this is adorable. Now you know I've made it made it plain that I'm not <laughs> I'm not a massive clue hunter here. I'm all about the relationships <laughs> and Robin's care for Strike here is absolutely gorgeous. So she can see he's ill. We can see he's ill, mm-hmm. but this she she picks up on it and first thing she does because she's Robin and she cares for him is that she offers him tea and he refuses he's like he, he kind of like in a very very man flu blokey way says no 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 because he wants to focus on what they want to talk about and then when Shanka phones not only does she immediately respect his request for a boundary there that he says I, I you know he, he doesn't need to explain he just says can you give me a minute and she does she's not arsy about it but when she returns she's bought him tea that he refused earlier and he and he takes it and there's no sense of right. you know I didn't want this because because mm-hmm. he knows he, he does. does he knows you know but she's doing it because she cares for him she's doing it because she's looking after him because as per the epigraph you're the one that matters to me so it's gorgeous it is. Here's my final thought for this. I know that he's sick, but what was he thinking? He's been told about this film, okay? He's been told that Greg Talbot thinks it's a dirty film, is I think what he says. Mm-hmm. Why would he say, Robin, come back and let's watch this together? I was thinking that whenever I was listening to this again, like, I'm really glad, though, that... Oh, yeah. They, well, that yeah, obviously. But even if that's all it was, why would he think... <laughs> Let's watch dirty movies together. Yeah. (laughs) Well, to be fair, I think I think it's evidence, isn't it? So I mean, well, yeah, but it's yeah, it's a little bit awkward to watch. (laughs) Yeah, let's let's watch a dirty movie with your best mate. This is fine, and and the person you're trying to pretend like you're not in love with. Yeah, yeah, I mean, I've, I've got to say, I'm all about seeing the the romantic elements of, of, of things, but I can't, can't say that would occur to me. I was just, what are you thinking, dude? There's definitely a what are you thinking. Yeah, I'll give you that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> all right, let's do 27. Yeah, I'll I guess I'll do this one. Sure. Um, His name was Talus, made of iron mold, immovable, resistless, without end, who in his hand an iron flail did hold, with which he threshed out falsehood and did truth unfold. I just got to this part of the Fairy Queen. Oh, did for you? the first time yeah in the version i'm reading he's called iron man which is kind of funny so talos or talus as, as it's written in the epigraph is uh, from uh, greek myth and he was a massive big statue and he had a, a kind of vein almost running through him that was uh, his only weakness and he's big made of metal and if you could like get this plug undone on his on his ankle he had exactly the same weakness as Achilles. He had an Achilles heel, that that's the way you could destroy him. And the Fairy Queen actually has him slightly different. Um, he's got this uh, flail whacking the truth out of people, which is presumably why Rowling's used the Fairy Queen element of that, because uh, the actual original Greek creature, he, he actually heated up rocks, hugged them really, really tight, heated them up and threw them. That's how he kind of like kept people away from the island where he was. So obviously strikes Achilles heel here is most obviously his illness, but it's also 
let's be real, it's also his fixation on pretending he isn't in love with Robin, which makes his shopping trip even more stressful in a beautifully hilarious way. Frankly, it's one of my favourite bits for humour. Yeah. But yeah. Yeah, I loved the whole him trying to figure out like calling Ilsa and being like okay what does Robin want okay I don't need backstory okay that's what the previous perfume she has the uh the shop assistant picked it out yeah that'll be fine yeah (laughs) it's not too personal but I love that he thinks that this is too intimate a gift and yet 73 happens yeah yeah (laughs) I'm not sure that this was a great recommendation from Ilsa because it's really hard. It's oh, a really it's, hard thing to buy for somebody else. It's a hundred percent Ilsa, the midwife of romance, though. Mm-hmm. I mean, that is. I can't believe she got away with it, to be honest, because it's so <laughs> flipping blatant. Why yeah. don't you buy her some lingerie? She'd really like that. <laughs> <laughs> That's ridiculous. Almost as ridiculous as the perfume names. Oh my god! No wonder oh. he was freaking out. <laughs> Oh, I was wiping away tears. It's so funny. So you've got carnal flower, dantebra, which means in your arms. And I mean, this one, the last one is the absolute peak. Now, I presume you pronounce it musk ravageur, but the way it's written, obviously, is musk ravager, which is precisely why he says shaggable you in the last chapter, because that's where it comes from. It's like, what else would you describe that? oh my word and it's just the fact that he's like as soon as she says that he's like no i'll leave it thanks no, we've gone too far i no. which i think i think was the right decision there oh yes definitely <laughs> not the chocolate but you know when i when i was listening to it, i think i was in the kitchen at the time and i literally slapped my head i was like no <laughs> don't buy a caramel don't buy a salted caramel that's what morris did and it was a disaster <laughs> We have a friend who always points out that he was standing right next to silk scarves. Like, why didn't you just do that? (laughs) Yeah, seriously. That would have been a perfectly fine gift. (laughs) Of course, because he's, because he, again, with the weakness, this this Mm -hmm. is Achilles heel, the way he feels about it. It wouldn't be an issue if he didn't feel the way he feels about it. Because if she was just a platonic colleague, it wouldn't matter, would it? But because she means so much to him that's why it's stressing him out mm-hmm. so wake up pal well he wants to show something of the truth but you know the truth is dangerous mm-hmm. okay so strike meeting shanker what did you guys think of the whole reachy thing because i was terrified same yeah if you shanker scared given what we mm-hmm. how he's how the character's been built up as someone who is incredibly intimidating himself to have him say no you don't mess with this it's yeah. like okay okay yeah, I was maybe you shouldn't mess yeah the whenever he was like he said that you know he'll torture office and you your know cut up, cut up your girl like oh i had flashbacks to career of evil yeah yeah i was i was uh i was real scared mm-hmm. i'm still kind of scared on the whole reachy thing i'm not convinced that that whole thing is wrapped up but we'll see i think maybe if he becomes a suspect or any of them become a suspect in a different case but i think they're they're safe with the Margot thing. Well, yeah, yeah, yeah. But if they pop up again in another case, like, ooh. I suspect they might, actually. I mean, this is a fairly colourful creation as far as characters go. I don't know, obviously, but... I'd really like um, to see them brought to justice, so... But it is scary. Yeah. She wouldn't bring Richie up and, like, have him be, like, the only person that even Shanker is sitting here going, like, yeah, you don't mess yeah. with this guy. It, it, it has to serve some sort of narrative purpose, I think. Mm-hmm. Uh, also, uh, in terms of the way Strike responds to that warning as well, I think that's, that's a significant character aspect. Because Strike, I don't think Strike is a man who, uh, he's, not, he's not a foolish man. He doesn't take stupid risks. But I think it it shows that his he's got this tenacity about seeking the truth. He's got this tenacity about seeking justice, I guess. Mm-hmm. That means that, okay, you've told me the risks. I will assess that and I will make my decision because this is important. And mm-hmm. I think that's I love that about it about it. It's one of the reasons I really, really like the man as a character. Oh yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh, absolutely. It's his uh, sense of justice, yeah. Not that he's a Hufflepuff or anything. Speaking of that, when they're, the, the chapter starts out at uh, Hamley's. Yes. Yeah. 
When yeah. I looked it up on Google Maps, the whole front was just done Harry Potter and each window was a different house. And I was just struck would definitely be standing under the Hufflepuff one. <laughs> Hamley's toy store is frankly legendary. When I was a kid, my father worked in London and I didn't go very often into London, but to go to Hamley's toy store was I probably went there maybe twice when I was a kid and it, it was Wonderland. It was the most exciting place in London, hands down, other than Madame Tussauds of the London Dungeons. Um, <laughs> it was definitely Hamley's toy store was amazing, frankly. You can go in there on Google Maps. Oh, really? If you're, if you're like me and, you know, really far away. <laughs> well, one of these days. One of these days. I, I think I'm going to try with, uh, with the deep dive. I think I am going to try and do some uh, location stuff eventually. That's That'd be the great. plan. Yeah, that would be quite cool. One thing, speaking of locations, that I did for this page on Strike Fans was obsess over the Nerf guns because the assistant tells him that it's the most popular toy. So I found like a Nerf gun website and looked up what would be the most popular Nerf gun in 2013. And I found it and I put it on there. <laughs> oh my God. Dedication. Yeah. I mean, obsession. It's fine. Those are the little things I like to obsess over. Mm -hmm. Okay. 28. Some of these are pretty short today. Okay. Chapter 28. Greatly thereat was Britta Mart dismayed. Nay, in that stound wist, how herself to bear. Poor Robin in this chapter. I have watched that DVD that Robin gives strike. And I have to say, of all of the things that you could have on while you're ill, it's a good concert to have on in the background. I had it on while I was working and it, it's actually really, really awesome and kind of hard to find so robin went like out of her way to to find those concerts and just how sweet is she she's robin is an angel he's adorable mm -hmm. but yeah she's having a hard time here mm -hmm. upset yes. with the strikes gift yeah i read this through a number of times and i mean i, I actually like linda mm -hmm. as I, I like her better in the books than i did on telly actually but um i do too reading her kind of it's described as a monologue Mm -hmm. um when she she's she's talking to robin and she's just splurging everything at her and it's really frustrating actually because i'm thinking linda come on why do you think this she's she's the one that's dealing with this not not actually you what why are you step, take a step back take a breath please because yeah. i could just feel how intimidated and stressed out robin was it was very very hard to read actually yeah she's yeah. overwhelming and that last line really kind of underlines that, you know, facial muscles aching from all her forced smiling. She closed her eyes and allowed herself the luxury of exhausted misery. Yeah. And it's so she has to put on this happy face because she's expected to react to the baby the way they want her to. And poor thing. She's yeah. like at a loss for things to say aside from she's gorgeous. Poor thing. She just feels so awkward. She's just been dumped on all of this stuff about Matthew and all this anger. And then it's like, here, be so happy. Yeah, yeah, it's a lot. I think it's interesting. There's a kind of disconnect as well with the fact that nobody actually seems that interested beyond a gossip level in her life and what she's doing. Mm -hmm. And I think that's quite upsetting as well. That yeah. well, let's talk about all the disasters in your life. Let's let's lay them all out right in front of you and slap you over the head with them. And then we're going to present you with this perfect, lovely baby. With everyone's going to be cooing all over, and it's all lovely. And and expect you in the midst of all this misery that we've just reminded you of yeah. to to have a a, a a smile plastered on your face. There's a weird disconnect there. You'd think that if people were reminding you of all the horrible things, that they would accept that you wouldn't be the life and soul of the party, but you're still expected to be mm -hmm. focused on something else. It doesn't seem to be very thoughtful of, of her family at that stage. No, definitely not. Well, we'll get more of it in uh, in chapter 30, which is, ah, <laughs> oh, I feel so bad for her in that chapter, but I'm getting First ahead of 29. myself. Let's yeah. get, let's do chapter 29 first. I'll do this one. Thus warred he long time against his will, till that through weakness he was forced at last to yield himself unto the mighty ill, which as a victor proud, gan ransack fast his inward parts and all his entrails waste. So a lot of puking. Puking, yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. <laughs> 
But I like that you pointed out, Claire, that it's just also everything else he's battling. Yeah, the uh, what well, I wouldn't say highlight. That's not the word I mean. I mean the <laughs> the climax is obviously the throwing up, but it doesn't come in a vacuum, does it? It's uh, although that would be fairly disgusting, wouldn't it? Throwing up in a vacuum. <laughs> um, no, <laughs> but it's like it's it's the culmination. That's the word I'm looking for. Culmination of all the other stuff that he's had to deal with. Ugh. It's not a great Christmas for him. And Lucy acting like he got ill on purpose so that he couldn't visit. Yeah, I was a bit disappointed in her reaction there. I mean, not surprised, but disappointed. She's such a little sister. She really is. I mean, she's she's got serious little sister energy, I'm afraid. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I don't have have one. I have little sister and and actually, she's lovely. She's nothing like this. But I'm just in terms of she's going like, to be mad at you now. Archetypes. <laughs> That's what I'm talking about. Archetypes. <laughs> but Pat, oh, bless Pat, right? Yes, hundred percent. Pat to the rescue. He really needed that. The fact that she went all the way, like out of her way, to get him some soup. Just ah, uh, and she has the projector, like. Pat is awesome. Can we just get a round of applause for Pat? Yeah. She's awesome. And can we just really appreciate how I really think they're going to get along eventually because she's so so competent and we know he Mm -hmm. likes his competency, don't we? We sure do. So, Mm -hmm. you know. And I think his feelings about it were so nice that he's, you know, felt quite pathetically grateful. And then even later, the memory of Pat's kindness became this Christmas morning still more touching in re- retrospect. I, I like the fact that she's, 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 she's not a, their relationship is not remotely sentimental, mm-hmm. but it's not, it's very English actually, that, that <laughs> we, we can be quite antagonistic to people that we like. And I think, especially when there's a growing likeness, as there is, I think, I think between Strike and Pat, that there's a yeah. there's a sort of sparring thing. And I think I think the sparring thing will remain, but actually I think eventually it'll become quite affectionate. Uh, so we get another text from Charlotte. Are you with someone you love? Which oh, such a low blow for where he's at. Oh, she mm. is just such a horrible, manipulative little harpy. I just I <laughs> I hate her so much. Tell us how you really feel, Kens. She is the worst. Oh my god. But but this is a really important contrast moment from the chapters we were looking at before, where he's having his burgeoning moment and <laughs> um and and he's he's thinking about he's thinking about all those those lovely memories he's got of lovely birthday with her and mm-hmm. and all that all that stuff. What he's doing here, though, is he's deliberately forcing himself to think about a time with her that wasn't nice and that actually was reality so that he doesn't get sucked down into that infection that he calls it so often of thinking that this was love and this was the only thing that he was worth. And, you know, all that that really hard stuff that he's actually trying this this is real growth this is a really healthy moment for him where he's actually looking at the reality of their relationship and he's remembering the awful time when she came down to Cornwall and 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 there was a big fight and no not presume that's where Polworth got the whole Milady Berserko thing and that's a really really positive thing I think for him and again I think that shows the trajectory in the whole of Trouble Blood of him actually starting to face up to his relationship with with Charlotte and the reality of it and come to a better place at the end and I really think he's he's well I wouldn't say he's he's 100% there by any means but I think he's he's done quite a lot of work and this is part of it. Yeah, that's written really nicely. Um, it would be so easy to answer, so easy to tell her he was alone, ill, unsupported, and then he'd come such a long way to a place of lonely security against emotional storms. Just, ah, mm-hmm. uh, it's one of those growth yeah. moments. Definitely. <laughs> yeah, so proud of him. I love the way that uh, J.K. Rowling tells us things through emails between the two of them. It's really effective and recapping and there's so much information it's very neat it's a very neat good i mean to be honest with you oh i'm gonna say something slightly controversial here i do Uh think i do think that trouble blood as a book could probably have benefited from a little bit more ruthless editing so it's already quite (laughs) sorry i'm totally kidding hand hand
and my strike fan card in yes um, <laughs> i mean i love it i don't don't get me wrong i mean like, it, it could be the size of three bricks instead of just the one brick but there's so much in it that I think she's had to be a little bit creative with how she gets a lot of this exposition in because otherwise you would just have reams and reams and reams of conversation and not cute little conversations about astrology and let's make fart jokes it's like (laughs) let's talk about Douthwaite doing this and doing this and doing this and doing this and and until the reader's going oh please I don't care anymore you know so yeah so I think she's 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 done it very creatively, to be fair. For the record, I agree. Probably could have used just a smidge more editing. You get out too. I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> oh man. Oh, even me. Damn. Oh, no one's safe. <laughs> okay, but look, if I if I say chapter 73 was a date, will you be okay with it? <laughs> <laughs> I'm totally kidding. Speaking of the email though. Um, let's see, most interesting bits. Death of a Scorpio, Talbot seemed to think it suggested somebody died and that Margot may have found that death suspicious. He's definitely onto something there. Yeah. And um, I like this bit. Again, again, they're so close, but completely backward. And as a friend slash neighbor of Douthwaite's, Janice might have had her own suspicions about him. <laughs> Just so funny because it's the exact opposite that's true. If he'd have actually properly assessed, I keep laboring this point, but if he yeah. actually properly assessed the evidence in front of him, he would have got that. I really liked this bit. That's It's a, a good little bit of, I'm not sure if you'd call it misdirection, but the whole, um, you know, strike watching the film and then throwing up afterwards. You know, you think it could be because of the out-of-date chicken, but it's actually mm. because of the chocolates and you don't even yeah. think anything of it. Well, yeah. I mean, I thought it could also be because of the film itself. So you don't really know what's happening. Yeah. It's just, it's, it's interesting how it's, how that's all, you know. It's layered, isn't it? It's very much a, a cleverly layered piece of everything converging mm-hmm. so that you, you miss the clue because mm-hmm. actually there's a rhetorical technique called the dead cat. And it's where you you try and you, you basically win an argument by throwing a dead cat on the table. So you say something absolutely astonishingly shocking and nobody else is talking about what you're trying to conceal over here because they're talking about the dead cat on the table. And that's pretty much what what Rowling's done here. She's thrown the dead cat on the table of the stuff movie so that she can hide the poison chocolates, which is machiavellian in its genius <laughs> but yeah that's what's going on here <laughs> we've made it to our last chapter I have a lot of stuff for this one take it away ah dearest dame quoth then the pain and bold pardon the error of enraged white whom great grief made forget the reins to hold of reason's rule we, what are our thoughts on that epigraph shall i read out my my very eloquent summing up it's the best go for it oh right so in in, in Spen- Spencerian language, Morris is a dick, shows her his dick, and then is desperate to apologise because he's been such a dick. Seriously, though. Oh, my I, God. I really love this, her listening to Joni Mitchell. I think it's um, laying in bed, not being able to sleep. It's really lovely comparison and her coming to some self-realisation here. A couple of quotes that I'm going to read. Uh, She realized that the images she had found alienating in their strangeness were confessions of inadequacy and displacement, of the difficulty of merging two lives, of waiting for the soulmate who never arrived, of craving both freedom and love. And then the next one, it was with a literal start that she heard the words at the beginning of track eight, I'm always running behind the times, just like this train. And when later in the song, Mitchell asked, what are you going to do now? You've got no one to give your love to. Tears started in Robin's eyes. This this whole thing about craving for both freedom and love, I think that's so Robin. She's craving freedom from Matthew. And she even talks about in the beginning how she loves having her own space and doesn't miss him at all. But I think she is craving love. Who does that sound like? Yeah. She, she sounds like someone else, doesn't she? Wow. That's interesting. Yeah. So then it continues, but listening to Court and Spark, Robin thought that it was perfectly true that she was traveling in a different direction to anyone she knew. She was fighting her way back to the person she should have been before a man in a mask reached for her from the darkness beneath the stairwell. The reason nobody else understood that was they assumed 
that her true self was to be the wife Matthew Kenliffe had wanted, a woman who worked quietly in HR, stayed home safely after dark. They didn't realize that that woman had been the result of those 20 minutes and that the authentic Robin might never have emerged if she hadn't been sent by mistake to a shabby office in Denmark Street. It's magic, isn't it? It is. Absolutely magic. And just her, with a strange sense of having spent her sleepless hours fruitfully, Robin turned off her iPod. I mean, she's just really learning about herself right there. And it's so good. It's gorgeous. Yeah. Yeah. I I love the fact that she doesn't gel with the music when she first Mm -hmm. hears it. But actually, when it hits her at the right spot, it absolutely speaks to her soul. And I I suspect that's probably what happened with Margot, actually. I think that that she probably connected with it on the same level. I think that's absolutely wonderful. I really, the, the quote you've got there about the real authentic Robin coming through is just... I think that encapsulates one of the reasons really why I love Robin so much and why I so enjoy reading her journey throughout the books and why I'm so excited to see what happens to her next. And I love her realising it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and that's that's the point, that it's right. not just we're watching it, it's that we are watching her grab hold of it. It's thrilling, frankly. And becoming okay with this traveling in a different direction because that's really bothered her. Mm-hmm. And now she's like, no, this is just who I'm supposed to be. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Something else that, that I wanted to share that I remember looking this up whenever it was like before Troubled Blood had come out, it was like shortly beforehand. Lindsay, you remember what I'm talking about, right? Where they were, it was like the first time that Joe had talked about how Court and Spark was like kind of like a big clue to the book and everything and it was going to be a big part of the book um so I decided to look up because I'm not like a huge Joni Mitchell fan I mean I like her stuff but like I'd never really given Court and Spark a listen so I started doing some research on it and I came across a Rolling Stone review that is from the end of February 1974 and it's uh it's it's pretty interesting I'm gonna read this little uh this little part here um and I'll include a link to it in the show notes as well so Joni Mitchell has composed few songs of unambivalent feeling even her most minimal work suggests a need for change and skepticism about its potential results on Court and Spark she's elevated this tendency into a theme no thought or emotion is expressed without some equally forceful statement of its negation the actual opposites of Court and Spark the thrill of courtship modulated by the fear of emotional commitment suggests a series of choices that Mitchell touches on passes through and defines with a astounding compression the alternatives of love and freedom trust and paranoia security and rootlessness concern for herself and for others compromise and pursuit of perfection and even sanity and insanity so just something interesting just something interesting she says yeah. she reads that and then she says just something interesting just something interesting <laughs> what i know that's amazing that's i mean i thought that was really cool yeah whenever i uh whenever i looked that up before the book came out i was like ooh, ooh. it's it's pretty cool i was like i was hoping that there would be clues in there and yeah i thought that was really it's really interesting to go back and read that article and reading back on robin you know listening to court and spark for the first time so when she sees strike's name on her phone She's really, I think we've talked about this in a few episodes back, but looking for that return sign of friendship because she wants more personal and he's like all business right now. I mean, I don't blame him. He's sick, but do you guys think that her family not asking about work is somehow tied up in this taboo of not asking about strike? Yeah, I think it's, they still could be hesitant to talk about it because of the Ripper stuff. I think that that's still yeah, something that's very much, still very much on their minds. Well, understandably. <laughs> uh, yeah, I yeah. mean, not, yeah. It would, it would be kind of uh, weird if they, you know, didn't, so. Yeah, I think there's a there's a heavy element of not really understanding. Mm-hmm. I mean, they didn't really understand why she wanted to do what she wanted to do when she was younger anyway. Mm-hmm. She, you know, she'd talk about investigation and stuff and she'd get teased about it by her brothers, which is a very brother thing to do, I guess, but by the same token you think I think there's an element of her always having to push her view of herself uh, in like what she wanted to do anyway 
I, so I, I do get the sense that they're not hugely keen on finding out about it, really. So I do, I do think there is a, obviously there's a concern element because she's been put at risk. And I do think there is an aspect of awkwardness about certain things they've heard about strike and so, or, or assumed about strike at least. But I, I do think there's frustratingly for me, I think that there is a, a slight lack of wholehearted support for her in what she's choosing to do. Which is a shame, really. Mm-hmm. Something that, that I was just thinking about was, in relation to that question, was, you know, I think that it, it it might be just because a few paragraphs above where Robin gets the email from Strike with all of the information and everything and Linda's like, oh, you're getting an email from him on Christmas Day. And then it says, and Robin realized in that instant that Jeffrey, her ex-father-in-law, must have been spreading it around Massim that if Matthew had been unfaithful, it was only after being heinously betrayed himself. So, mm. yeah, if everybody is still believing that, you know, Robin's been sleeping with Strike this whole time, then, yeah, I guess they could that could make it a little bit awkward if you're talking about work as then... It opens up a whole can of worms that I don't think anybody really wants to address. Robin is so not ready to talk about strike with anybody because she's not even ready to talk about it with herself. Yeah, no kidding. (laughs) What what would she say, though? And that's that's the other question, isn't it? It's like, Mm -hmm. if they did actually bring any of this stuff up, what would Robin say at this point? And I think we have our answer in the fact that she spends spends Christmas on her phone yeah. getting drunker and drunker and drunker talking to well, Morris the dick. <laughs> Literally. Um, the, what you just said there, it's, it reminds me of this quote when she says she knew exactly what impression she was giving Linda, but she had her pride. Perhaps there was no shame in being single, but the pity of her family, the thought of Matthew and Sarah walking through Massam, everyone's suspicion of her in strike, and the fact that there was nothing whatsoever to tell about her and Strike, except that he thought he'd better start taking over some of her leads because she got no results, all made her want to clutch to some kind of fig leaf to her threadbare dignity. It's that oh. and that there was nothing to tell. Oh. Why is she cheesed off about this? Because she saw Strike's no name on her phone and he just wanted to talk about work. He didn't want to talk about the fact that I love you. Oh my God, I love you. <laughs> she's yeah absolutely she's frustrated because and she does she can't even face that yeah it's it's slipped in at the end of the of the little catalog of misery Mm -hmm. it's like oh and guess what just to add insult to injury he really isn't calling me up because he loves me and (laughs) to tell me he loves me and stuff that's really annoying and yeah that was a bit that (laughs) she's so revealing yeah, that was a big bit that um, I didn't see at first, but upon rereads, it was like, oh, and that there was nothing yeah. to tell. This is the main mystery of the series. How Robin <laughs> and Strike feel about each other is something we will never know. Oh, yeah, no, no idea. How, how two people who are really good detectives <laughs> can miss something so very, very obvious. Well, like Una says, even the smartest people can be bloody <laughs> stupid. <laughs> <laughs> oh, bless them. Okay, let, let's talk about the gift that Robin gets from Linda. And this is this perfume I have washed. I, have... <laughs> I just love that. It, it's, you know, wanting to wipe Robin clean of these allegations and how she wants her to be seen as... And what Robin is not after, she says it's totally without romance. Yeah, so this is, this, the perfume's an interesting one. Yeah. The, the choice that her mum makes, particularly, um, because she's actually chosen, it's a Chanel perfume, Chanel Chance. And it's actually, it comes in four different versions, if you like. The perfume houses often do this. I mean, it's a, it's a selling technique, yeah. basically, but they'll give different notes, different colours, different packaging, and so on. And Chanel's Chance the original one I actually quite like it it's quite sensual and spicy and there's quite a depth to it and the, another version is I'm getting my 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 French is not like chance tendre there you go it's that that's a sort of musk white musk so that's you know it's not it's not as heavy as the the original one but it's it's still quite alluring and you know sexy 
And then you've got Chanel Aviv, which is, it's quite similar to the one that she would have always worn before, the, the Philosycos, mm-hmm. which is, it's figs, basically. That's what Philosycos is. It's, it's very fig, it's very fruity. And this Chanel Aviv one is, the, the Chance Fever one is very orangey, I think, is, I would, I would say. So it's very, that's very fruity. But the one that a mum gives her is the uh, Chance Fresh, which literally is the most boring one of them all. It's like it's taken all the sexiness of all the other ones and it's kind of just drained all the sexiness out of it. And it's given her something which is very, very unexciting, very, very generic. It's it's like a body spray. It's it's it's, it's like shower gel. It's very dull, I think, in comparison to the to the other ones. And I think that says an awful lot, I think, about what, what Linda's kind of hoping mm-hmm. for, for Robin. And also the fact that Robin doesn't like it says an awful lot about what she wants. Yeah. Like that she is going for sexy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, and and Lindsay, this comment here that you made about who ends up giving that to her later. Ooh. I just I don't oh, know it. it's a mystery. Yeah. This whole God, the perfume Yeah, I love the perfume bit. The perfume thing in this in this book is just so good oh it's it's such it's uh, such a good strand for for humor for romance for for thematic stuff Mm -hmm. it's it's a genius piece of storytelling it really is Mm -hmm. speaking of genius storytelling morris i knew that this was not going to end well as soon as it started it's like oh no don't drink and text i think is uh, is the the big takeaway here yes (laughs) Uh oh And actually, Ken's one of the questions that we were talking about on an episode or two ago about how many daughters he has, he actually says little girls. So he has more than one daughter, which is horrifying. There you go. Yep. I can't work out, and I suspect this is because I don't have a penis, (laughs) how he got to, you know, I mean, you can kind of see where it's going if you have met people with penises like that, Mm -hmm. but... I can't understand how he got to this sort of like fairly silly conversation to all of a sudden thinking this is a good idea. She's mentioned bed. I must take a picture of my erect penis. The obvious next step in this conversation. I just don't know how you get there. But like I said, I don't have one. So he kind of has already been inappropriate where when she's saying I have to go play Pictionary, he's like, draw a penis. I don't know why you say that to Mm. your boss. Oh, he doesn't think she's his well, boss, yeah, though, does he? I know. Yeah. Not at all. No. <laughs> oh, oh, she's the secretary. <laughs> Clearly. It doesn't matter. He can be as inappropriate as he likes. Oh, ah, horrible man. He is and his, his response, I hate even more than actually sending the picture, right? Because it's just so manipulative and awful. And he's going to make her feel bad. Like, he deserves some sort of sympathy here. Well, I think what's so astonishing is that I actually don't think he's being deliberately deliberately manipulative there. Mm-hmm. I think he actually does think that. So thinking forward at the, you know, chapter 58 and thereafter when he's a complete pillock, and when he turns around and says to Stripe, oh, you know, you're you're thinking with your dick, you're just, you want to keep her on because of this. Right. Like there's any possibility that he's going to get rid of her. Mm-hmm. I don't think he's deliberately being manipulative there. I think he actually, that's how he's thinking. But he sent her this picture and she hasn't responded with, oh, wow, that's a beauty. Um, And he's horrified because he's thinking to himself, oh, no, what have I done? And all the consequences are going to fall on me and everything. Do you know what I mean? He's He's not thinking, oh, how do I get out of this consciously? He's, he's right. suddenly seeing himself as terribly put upon. He's an asshole. Yes. He's such an arse. Uh, and she compares it to Matthew when she finds out that he was cheating because he did the same thing. You did something wrong and yet, oh no, poor me. And then what was it about her that made men demand that she keep their dirty secrets? Yeah. Oh. Oh, God. Robin. Um, there was a bit here in the midst of all of this horrifying ridiculousness with the dick pic was you know since robin has gone outside you could see the neighbor's heads 
bobbing behind their kitchen blinds. The Ellicotts were providing rich entertainment this Christmas, all right. First a new baby, then a shouting match about a penis. <laughs> so it gave yeah. me a little chuckle there in the midst of all of, in the midst of being horrified for Robin. It reminds me of Pride and Prejudice, actually, and um, Mr. Bennett saying we provide entertainment for our neighbors and they'll provide entertainment in turn. <laughs> it's, it's, it's very, it's very small town, I think. Mm -hmm. <laughs> had one final thought here in that this I've never seen Robin more like strike than in this chapter she's funny I mean the way she you know suggesting alcoholic breast milk and just all of her drinking to deal with her family she very much reminded me of him in this chapter and I thought it was really funny yeah I think in in essentials they are they are actually really quite similar yeah. as much as they complement each other in their differences. I think that's, that's why they, they work. It's so nice that in this chapter, she has also come to terms with something about herself and learning who she really is. And also in this chapter, we see her being this kind of person. So it's great. Yeah. And it's those boundaries again, that we mentioned earlier with when she's cuts off the call from Tom, mm -hmm. it's, it's she, she, she gets this, this picture and she's not, cowed she's not intimidated she's not shrunk down i mean i remember getting things like that and being like oh yeah. you know completely blindsided by it she's angry mm -hmm. and she absolutely loses her nut and it's magnificent yeah she stands up for to the herself. point where he becomes a sniveling little boy yeah. it's 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 wonderful yes mm. go robin go robin oh man we did it Thank you so much for coming and staying up late with us. It's been an absolute joy. I've loved every second. All right. Well, I think that'll do it for this episode. Thanks so much for listening. If you enjoy what you have heard so far, don't forget to follow us on social media. And don't forget to follow Clara on social media, too. Her handle is at Clara Strike. And we'll make sure to have her Twitter stuff in our show notes as well. Um, we're on Twitter, Instagram, and Tumblr at the SE Files Pod with regular updates announcing future episodes. If you'd like to send us a response to anything you've heard or have something you'd like us to discuss, you can always email us at SEFilesPodcast at gmail.com. Thank you so much again for listening, and we hope to catch you next time for another exciting episode of The Strike and Ellicott Files.